Well, good morning, and would you join me as we do each week in opening up our Bibles together. Uh, we're going to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to be, Lord willing, finishing chapter 6 this morning. But, you know, in uh, just preaching week to week, there are times where I come across a passage to prepare and uh, scripture addresses a topic or reality where I feel like I need to do a little bit extra work to convince everybody that this is relevant for us, that, that we need to listen here. And um, for sure, we know that all scripture is God-breathed, all scripture is profitable for teaching, so we know that anything we read in here is relevant, but the reality is there's also at times certain topics that I, we know we just need to kind of do a little bit of harder work to say, okay, no, this matters to me, this matters to our world around us. And I say all that to say this, this morning, I did not have that issue, because the topic we're going to address is anxiety. Relevant not only to believers in the church, because scripture speaks to it, but I would say this is one of, if not um, one of the most um, discussed issues in our society, um, and the numbers back it up. Anxiety disorder is the most common mental illness in the United States affecting 40 million adults over the age of 18, which is 18% of the adult population. Anxiety is often, but not always, joined by depression. 50% of those diagnosed with anxiety disorder are also diagnosed with depression. Even scarier in some ways, anxiety disorder affects 25% of teenagers, ages 13 to 18, and those numbers just in and of themselves are somewhat alarming, but the sheer growth rate of those numbers in recent decades makes it all the more poignant for us. And, and so the challenge before us is to address in a single sermon the massive topic of anxiety, which, is, which not only is one of the most discussed, but I think is one of the most confused, one of the most topics fraught with tension amongst people when you talk about it, certainly inside the church um, and it's a reality where some people struggle with anxiety all the time. But all people struggle with anxiety at least some of the time. And so in order to address this, what I hope to be faithfully, I think it's vital to understand uh, that in our passage this morning, Jesus is talking about a specific type of anxiety that is in context with the rest of the Sermon of the Mount that we've been walking through now for several months and what's the most important part of this passage, as we'll see in a moment, is the first word in verse 25. So if you have your Bible open, look down at the first word. It starts with the word, therefore. And if you're sick of this little reminder I'm about to give you, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. But a trick that I learned from my father when, ever since I was young, and I've heard it in tons of sermons of his, was this. Whenever you see this word, ask yourself a question. What is the therefore? Therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore. And the reason why we need to ask that is and understand in that why that word is there, because in asking that question, it reminds us that what he is about to write after the word therefore is built upon what was written before the word therefore. And before it, in the passage we saw last week, Jesus was warning 
against putting all your worth in, all your hope in, all your kind of meaning in the treasures of this world. And just before that, he talked about being so concerned about the praise of others. So he's talking about a life that can be consumed by a praise of others and a life consumed by the earthly treasures of this world and how we ought to not put our hope in them. In them. Therefore, again, as we'll see in a moment, do not be anxious about your life. So it's a specific type of anxiety Jesus is addressing. And while anxiety in general is a major kind of uh, topic for discourse, not all anxiety or angst is the same. And the conversation that often surrounds anxiety, and I know I'm going to be speaking in kind of generalities and broad strokes here, but this is the way that kind of we've seen it, and I've been able to kind of talk to the staff and just kind of bat this around a little bit this week with them, is that in broad strokes within the church, there is a tendency to over-spiritualize everything about anxiety, where it gets boiled down to, if you're anxious, it's kind of your fault. you, you, you got to read the Bible more. you, you got to pray more. Have you tried praying before? And then, and then you won't be anxious. If you're a true believer, you wouldn't struggle with anxiety. And it can kind of stigmatize any kind of anxiety that could be um, clinical or chemical uh, and, and really just make somebody think, well, I'm just being completely unfaithful if I'm feeling anxious. And I see kind of the, there's a sense of right desire behind that of wanting to uphold the the spiritual side and remedy of anxiety. But unintentionally, I have found more so maybe than anything else over the last five years pastoring that Christians who struggle with anxiety have this added guilt heaped upon them. Whether they put that on themselves or all too often put on them by others that say that something is wrong with them if they feel anxious. And then outside the church, the pendulum swings completely, I think, too far in the other direction, where there is no real discussion about the spiritual realm, and that is completely removed. And you even actually try to suggest that, hey, faith and, and, and God and the spiritual realm plays a part in this, then, then you get shamed and kind of stigmatized as being a bigot. That No, that's not the answer here. We only need to look to the clinical realm for help and, and get away from the fact that spiritual reasons could be anything related to our anxiety. And so you have these two kind of ends of the spectrum that just lob grenades at one another. And so anytime we talk about anxiety in the church, again, it's filled with tension. And therefore, it's vital that we pay close attention to the text this morning and try to fight for clarity. So with that said, here's, here's the plan for this morning. Uh, first, we're, we're going to walk through this passage together, and we're going to kind of pinpoint the kind of anxiety that Jesus is talking about here. But because this topic is so massive, I want to ha- allow this passage to kind of shed light on some principles that we need to hold on to when thinking about anxiety in the church, in our own lives, and sometimes even more importantly, the way we're going to walk with others in the church So we're going to walk through the passage, see what it says, and then take that to kind of shed some light on some principles of how we can think well about anxiety. And so let's go to the text, Matthew 6. We're going to start in verse 25. And because we've been sitting for a little bit, can I just ask you to stand for this first passage? You can have the Bible follow along there, or it will also be on the screen. We're going to read verses 25 to 30. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, 
and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? All right, thank you. You guys may have a seat. In this passage, Jesus gives two broad reasons why Christians are called to and can successfully battle against anxiety. First, because God the Father is king. And second, we are children of the king. So first, God the Father is king. Jesus knows in speaking here to his disciples and whoever else of the crowd is listening in at this point, that one of the results of the fall and one of the results of living in a fallen world is the stress and the angst that all people have on some level, including his followers, regarding daily provisions. Right? Since people were created with the need for physical provisions, specifically in this context, food and water and clothing, a natural outflow from that is an angst as to what will happen if they don't get it. And Jesus is not saying that the approach you need to have is, who cares? He's not saying, who cares? Or having a kind of who cares type of attitude towards these daily provisions as if they're not important. But rather, he says, do not be anxious for them. We know he cares because just moments before in the sermon, he instructed them to pray for, among other things, daily provision. Look up at verse 11 of chapter 6 when he's teaching them the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus is not saying do not be anxious because who really cares about daily provision? But rather do not be anxious for the very reason that your Father does care for you. And so this is the specific type of anxiety that this passage is addressing. It's an anxiety that is rooted in a fear of the future because of a lack of trust in God. And because of the own materialism of their hearts. Materialism is taking physical things, we talked about this last week, including daily provisions, and treasuring them so much in our hearts that we look for them for our meaning, we look for them for our purpose, for ultimate joy, in other words, materialism is taking gifts provided by God, the Father, but then treating them like gods. Taking a gift and treating it like a god. And so those consumed by materialism will constantly worry about the things they do or do not have. And if you just, again, think about the United States, I gave you the stats of how much of a struggle anxiety disorder is. Not that all anxiety in those stats are rooted in this kind, but also consider the fact that the United States is one of the richest nations in the world. That it's the richest nations where you tend to find the most anxious people. Isn't that interesting? That it's those who have the most that are always anxious about wanting more. Or not having what they, in the future, what they currently have now or what they 
think they need. It's a type of anxiety that is rooted in self-centered interests. And then a lack of trust that there's a God there who actually cares about those things is far more on top of it than we could ever be. But I know that the mentality that we can get into, the track in our brains that we can get running on, where we say, well, if I don't worry about this, no one else will. If I'm not consumed about this, nobody else is going to think about me in this way. So if I don't do it, who will? And wherever we are self-centered, we become self-consumed. This is what happens with anxiety, is it, it, it blocks out the bigger picture. It blocks out perspective, and it dwells upon the very specific things that we say we cannot live without. And that's all we're consumed by. So to make his point, Jesus uses the lesser to the greater method. You know about this? The lesser to the greater, meaning if God the Father cares for this, then he will most certainly care for that. It's the lesser to the greater. And he says, for one, look at how God feeds the birds. And the word there for look does not mean glance at the birds. It doesn't mean just kind of casually notice the birds around you, which is what most of us usually do. We know birds are there, but we rarely look at them. Rather, that word that Jesus says literally means to gaze. Gaze upon the birds. It's the same Greek word that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 12, verse 2, when he says, run the race that is set before us, looking, that's the word, looking to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Gaze upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross. That's the same word that he applies here. Gaze upon the birds. So Mary, who led us in the congregational prayer this morning, uh, she revealed to me recently that she loves birds. This conversation came about from uh, she put up a, uh, a bird feeder that's attached to her office window. And kind of got to talking about that, and it was earlier in the winter when she did this, and I was like, cool, where, where are the birds? And like, she gave me a look of kind of like disappointment, like I should know, you know, this, that a new bird feeder takes a month for the birds to find it. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I was like, day one, where are the birds? But she got this bird feeder outside. Um, sure enough, if not to the day, very close, a month later, they started coming in. And you can see Mary's office window from our home. So now our kids are all in on wanting to look for the birds and what kind of birds are going there and wanting to tell Miss Mary which birds they saw when she was not in the office. Right, so they see a cardinal at 6.30 in the morning. They're like, we got to call Miss Mary. Like, we're not calling Miss Mary at 6.30 in the morning. Okay, and if it was a blue jay, we'll call Miss Mary, all right? But cardinal is not at the level that we need to get to. But the reality is, is that many of you might be a bird lover where you won't just notice the birds, but that you know more than anyone that birds are not lazy, Jesus is not saying, be lazy, because God will provide for you, because the birds just kind of sit back and food is provided. That's not how it works. Birds are, if you look upon them, harder workers than probably anyone. They are always on the move, always on the lookout. So they are not lazy, but, point Jesus is making, they're never worried either. 
They don't have big storehouses that they build to pack food away for a couple of months. And then he says, look at the flowers of the field, how they receive the provision that they grow into a greater splendor than man could ever create on their own. Even Solomon, the richest king in the Old Testament, did not hold a candle in all his splendor to the flowers of the field. I sometimes wonder, especially this time of year, one sign that we're so blinded to the concerns of this world, to our own personal needs, is that we don't really, I don't really, I'll personalize it, bear witness to the fact that what we just experienced over the past month is God's sign to us of new life. That literally we walk out and we see it happen over time. The progression of winter turning to spring is a parable for us that we get in this area every single year. And so often we don't look upon it. We glance, we notice, we start sneezing more. But he says, look upon the flowers of the field. Just look around, open it up. God's telling you a story every time you... Step outside. It's the lesser to the greater. If God cares for the birds and the flowers, surely he's a good father who will care for his children made in his image. I I think about how often we are uh, childlike in this, and God's kind of thinking about us the way I think about often our children. We have four kids, ages six and under. And they have, um, and I'll give Rochelle way more credit, not just because it's Mother's Day, but like she is like the best caretaker for them. And yet it fails to... Uh, surprise me every day when the kids freak out like they're never going to eat again. Like if they don't ask 18 times what's for lunch, they might not get lunch, as if they've ever gone a day where they haven't gotten lunch. And this would be like our four-year-old daughter taking food and trying to stuff it into her drawers because if she doesn't feed herself or store up, who would ever feed her? And we would rightly think that's kind of ridiculous for her to do, but isn't that the way we often think when it comes to the needs we have in this world. So Jesus makes clear, I think here, that this type of anxiety is sinful. And I know we get a little nervous to say that word and attach to it, but, but there's a kind of worrying that is sin, a kind of anxiety that is centered on self, that is rooted in a lack of trust. When Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, Oh, you who have a lack of trust in which that which is unseen. And I, I think about this, and I understand it. I feel it. I get it. But just because we understand this kind of anxiety does not mean we should tolerate it. Certainly, first and foremost, in ourselves. So that's number one. Let's read now the next few verses to the end of the chapter. Pick it up in verse 31. Therefore, there it is again, Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Number two in this passage is that we are children of the king. You can pick up on the tension that Jesus is building here. That phrase, therefore, do not be anxious, was repeated three times in just a short span. 
And he's just stacking reasons upon reasons why we can, by God's grace and the spirit within us, live lives that are not held captive to anxiety. Jesus first affirms that God the Father is king, and now our assurance is rooted in the reality as he further kind of unravels this, that in Christ we are children of the king. He says when we are constantly worrying about our provisions, we act like the Gentiles do. Did you notice that? The the Gentiles here means non-Jews, meaning those who are not God's chosen people at this point in history. So functionally, he says that when we worry, we live and behave like unbelievers. The Gentiles have reason to worry. Because if this world is all there is, and it's all they have, and it's all they can gain, then anxiousness becomes actually really understandable. It becomes actually really legitimate that if it all just ends here, then I would be anxious too. In fact, I think, I'd be, I think it's even more surprising that non-believers are not more anxious than they are. Because if our ultimate hope is rooted in the things that could be here today and gone tomorrow, how would you not worry? Friend, if you're here this morning, or if you're watching online, and do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, my my simple question is, where do you find your deepest assurance in this life? Where is that hope most deeply rooted? Because the answer to that question will trace its way to your God. And if you're assured... If your assurance is rooted in something in this world that can be here today and gone tomorrow, I just want to as lovingly and compassionately tell you as I can that I can't say to you it's all going to be okay, which is often what we say to people who are feeling anxious. Because Christians don't just say everything's just going to be okay, however we define okay, but we say no matter what happens in this world, it will truly be okay because of Jesus Christ. And so let me be clear at this point that no matter what Christians may or may not have in this world, all Christians have the same blessed, blessed assurance at our foundation. And that assurance is rooted in the fact that there is one God who made us all in his own image. And that we have sinned against him. And we were rightly in line to be punished for that sin for all of eternity. But in his great mercy, God came himself in the person of Jesus Christ. As Mary prayed to live the life that we could not. And then die the death that we deserved. To take our punishment upon himself even though he had no punishment in himself to bear. And yet, because he died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who would repent of that sin and trust in him, when he rose from the dead, he offers us new life and faith. And that faith that we have is the hand that receives the gift of eternal salvation. And as we'll get to soon, this is not a magical wand that removes all anxiety from our lives, but it equips us to battle against anxiety with the assurance of Christ that cannot be taken from his children. For our heavenly Father knows all that you need. And he who created us will also care for us as long as he wills, according to his perfect purpose. 
And as children of the king, we are equipped and then commissioned to seek first his kingdom. It's the name of the sermon. Seek first his kingdom. Uh, What does that mean? Maybe it's a phrase you've heard around in church in a while. But what's it look like practically to seek first the kingdom of God? I think Jesus is giving a little play on words here in verse 33. He's saying, rather than seeking your own self-interest and provision, which is covered by God, we are now free to focus our best energy toward seeking first the kingdom of God. I think he's essentially saying, don't be anxious about your life. Be anxious for the kingdom of God. Be anxious for setting our hearts on his kingdom, capital K, and not our little kingdoms, lowercase k. And to seek his kingdom is to prioritize the work of making disciples, to prioritize the mission of spreading the gospels and living in accordance to a love for God and a love for neighbor. But it also allows us to think deeply and winsomely in how to display that gospel that we proclaim in every area of our lives. I think this is what it looks like to seek his righteousness Right? This reminds us of the Beatitudes when this uh, Sermon on the Mount began that we looked at all the way back in January. Blessed are those who hunger and for thirst for righteousness. I think it's the same idea. Seek first the kingdom, and that Beatitude ends with, for they shall be satisfied. Let me illustrate it like this. Um, May 1st every year is the year that uh, is the date that high school seniors need to declare where they're going to college in the fall. At least it was May 1st. I think that's still the date. Uh, But I know there are many seniors a part of our church ministry, Common Ground. Uh, There are students going to Baylor. There are students going to Purdue, to Rutgers. Um, I think there are a couple others. But if we talk about someone going to college and they get a full ride, If somebody gets a full scholarship to college, what does that mean? It means that the burden of the financial cost is lifted off that person, and now they are free to able to pursue their degree without the weight of knowing how they're going to pay for it, whether loans or jobs or other means. So somebody with a full ride is attending the same school as everybody else, but they can attend and study and grow without the burden of knowing how it's going to be paid for. In the same way, for the children of God to live a life seeking his kingdom and righteousness, Christians live in the same world as everyone else. We face the same classes, so to speak, that everyone else does, but we can do so without the burden of not knowing how or who will provide for us along the way. We are freed to live, to enjoy, to work towards our primary goal, and that is to see every area of our lives through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're free to ask, how does the fact that I'm a Christian impact the way I operate in my marriage, at my job, in my singleness, in my sexuality, in my hobbies, in my physical health, and my mental health, and on and on. We are freed to ask that question without worrying about the burden of how we're going to be provided for. All right. That's the passage. That is where I think, hopefully with some clarity, that God is addressing these things. We're seek first the kingdom of God and, and live for today because tomorrow will have its own trouble, which, he, again, he concedes to the fact that tomorrow may have trouble, but you don't need to worry about it today. 
that you and I are free to wake up this morning, and by God's grace, we'll go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow morning and be grateful for that day and ask God, what do you have for me today? How can I find ultimate meaning in the ordinary rhythms of life today? But I do think that I want to take the opportunity to say some things about the discussion and topic of anxiety in the church in general. I think this gives us an opportunity, builds a foundation for us to shed some light on how should Christians think about anxiety, especially since it's a topic that the world is talking about all the time. How should we enter into those discussions? So here's what I want to do, and it's going to be fast. I want to give us just six lines, we'll have them on the screen, to just provide some clarity, hopefully clear the fog a little bit, give us some things to hold on to, as we navigate our lives, battling anxiety or helping those who do. All right, so six applications here. We're going to go quick. Number one, not all anxiety is equal. The first application point here comes off the last point of the passage. Remember, Jesus did not say, do not be anxious, but rather, don't be anxious about your life. In many ways, and maybe we would use a different word for clarity's purposes, but we should be anxious to seek the kingdom of God. Maybe the best word there is angst. In believers, there should be a sense of angst that is God-centered and others-focused and not self-centered. Let me put it like this way. If you are worried about someone else not having proper provision... If you're worried about a certain group of people that is undercared for, marginalized, and discriminated against, that is a good angst to want to enter into those spaces. That's a good angst to want to say, I want to play a part and be used by God as a means of grace for providing for them. That's why Jesus said, when you serve the least of these brothers, you serve me. Because we are carrying out his work for the good of others. I think that is good angst. And then more importantly, it is good to be concerned for the eternal state of another person's soul who does not yet know him. It's good to be anxious for them to hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. I think it's safe to assume that every person here who considers himself a Christian can think about the person that God used to bring you to Christ. That somebody in your life, maybe more than one person, was anxious to see you know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And because of that angst in them, at some point they opened their mouths. They shared the good news. So in any situation, we could be worried for good reasons or for bad reasons. Let me share one quick personal example here. Um, Every Sunday morning, I wake up with an angst in my heart as we're heading into the gathering and before standing up and preaching. I think there are good reasons for that. Good reasons to worry, in a sense. Is the sermon going to be true to the word of God? Is it going to be clear for those hearing? I'm desperate for the Holy Spirit to use my imperfect preparation for his purposes and desiring that believers who hear it will be strengthened in the faith, for unbelievers hearing it will be awakened in the faith. I I hope that's a a good angst because it's God-centered and others-focused. But every Sunday morning, I have to battle the bad anxiety. The anxiety of, how am I going to sound this morning? 
Am I going to sound compelling? Are people going to laugh at this joke that I think is funny? Will people think highly of me? Will they affirm me in my preaching? Will they come to Grace and like Grace about our experience from, from walking in the door with hospitality to childcare? Will they be impressed with Grace Church? I think that's a bad angst. I think that's rooted in self that I need to stave off and, and ensure that I funnel that angst to being God-centered and others-focused. So I think that's one example of that all anxiety is equal. Number two, all anxiety is a result of the fall. All anxiety is a result of the fall. Hear me closely. I'm not saying anxiety in Christians is only a consequence of personal sin, but I'm saying that anxiety exists because of a world that has fallen due to sin. So even the good angst I just talked about, a good angst to see people saved is rooted in the fact that some people are not saved, which is a result of the fall. A good angst to want to provide for people groups that are underserved and underprivileged is, to, is, is some of these systems that discriminate against them of wanting to lament that. That's a result of the fall. But here's where I've seen the conversation around anxiety, especially amongst Christians, get really muddy. And I don't claim I can clear it all up, but I'm going to try. All self-centered anxiety that people experience is rooted in fear and unbelief. It's a lack of trust in God who cares for us. Sometimes the cause and severity of that anxiety is not merely um, circumstance or situation, but in the way our bodies are chemically constructed, where it's not as simple as you are choosing to be anxious and you could stop if you wanted to. Yet at its root, even clinical anxiety, which we'll touch on in a moment, exists because sin is in the world, not even if it's because of personal sin. And the reason why I think that's important to affirm is that the, prime, the proper remedies for anxiety might not be only spiritual in the way we categorize it, but true victory must include spiritual remedy. There is no victory over anxiety apart from God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if heaven is a place where there will be no anxiety, which I believe and the Bible is clear on, then the reason for all that anxiety at its root is because of the entrance of sin into the creative order, making it a spiritual issue. All right, let's keep going. Number three, some anxiety is clinical. Again, while the anxiety that Jesus is specifically addressing in this passage is not what we might think today as clinical anxiety, I do think it's important that we as Christians know the difference because we can do unintentional harm to ourselves and to others when we treat clinical anxiety the same way we treat anxiety that is rooted in a lack of trust for God's care. As I said at the beginning, anxiety disorder is the number one mental illness in America for adults and teens. And even if you think that those numbers are inflated and maybe we could have that conversation that people get diagnosed that don't need to be diagnosed, even if you want to say those numbers are a little juiced up, there, it is undeniable at this, some, at this point of the kind of chemical imbalance reaction. I know I'm kind of talking a little bit outside my strengths here, uh, related to it. That's not just related to personal decision. Symptoms include um, persistent anxious thoughts on most days for an extended period of time to the point where it interferes with daily functioning. 
It can run the spectrum from disorienting to debilitating. It can manifest itself as general anxiety disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety, and others. And admittedly, it can be difficult to discern whether or not am I struggling with anxiety or am I suffering from an anxiety disorder? And that's a question. If it becomes a question, the encouragement for us will always be to seek advice from a trusted counselor because it might be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So some anxiety is clinical. Number four, we are all called to battle anxiety via means of grace. I know it's a mouthful. I couldn't shorten it. I tried. We are called to battle anxiety via means of grace and that no matter what kind of anxiety we face, we trust that God is sovereign over all things and that uh, he has the power to uh, help us to not only address anxiety but to overcome it through various means of grace that he is the author of. I mentioned earlier how I don't believe, I don't know how non-believers battle anxiety, but I would take it even a step further to say I struggle to understand how anyone, including fellow believers, who do not believe that God is sovereign over every aspect of creation, from our eternal salvation to daily provision, how they battle anxiety either. Because this passage talks about our eternal caring Father, that in him we can trust that God will provide all that we need because he is sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside of his grasp. And even especially in the case of, er case of earthly provisions, that even in the times when they may not come, for we have to admit that there will be a day for all of us where our bodies will fail, but we trust that our eternal state is secure in him because of his sovereign grace, and he will provide for us as long as he sees fit. And that propels our confidence in battle against anxiety, including prayer. When Paul writes, do not be anxious, but offer your prayers and supplications to the Lord, where we can experience God's rest, even in the midst of restless circumstances, where we can chew and meditate on God's word, where we can surround ourselves with a community of believers. And then where necessary, those are kind of the common means of grace we hear about. But I also believe that means of grace include and come in the form of professional counseling and, at times, prescribed medication. Christian author Jasmine Holmes, she's a believer who has clinical anxiety. She says this, quote, Sometimes you need to calm down, take a deep breath, and be reminded who God is. And sometimes, in order to calm down, take a deep breath, and be reminded who God is, you need some extra help. Anxiety is the thought pattern in your brain that gets off track. And the key is to learn the tools to develop a new track pattern. Paul calls it the renewal of your mind. And there are various means of grace to do that. And even Jasmine Holmes would say that the diagnosis is part of God's care for you, part of God's provision for you, because the remedies of medication and therapy are not replacements for God's, the Holy Spirit within you, but it gets you to a better place to obey the command to trust in the Lord. But like everyone else, people with or without clinical anxiety are still called to trust in the Lord. All right, bear with me. we got two more. Number five, we are all called to support others and join in their battle against anxiety. Again, it's a mouthful. 
But part of seeking the kingdom of God, part of loving our neighbor well, is to come alongside them, both within the church and outside of it, in their support, in their battle against anxiety. That support is first found in praying for them, storming the throne of grace on their behalf, and if there is an opportunity to speak to them, it's generally never helpful to simply tell them, hey, do not be anxious. Either implicitly or explicitly indicate you're being unreasonable right now, just don't be anxious. Rather than say, um, you know, rather than say, you know, I thought you were Christian and Christians shouldn't struggle like this, help them by edifying them, by encouraging them with the presence of God that is in them no matter how they feel. Talking to several people inside and outside this church who battle and deal with anxiety disorder, generally the verse that says, do not be anxious, is never the first best thing to say. To say you need to have more faith is not just unhelpful, but it's borderline destructive and can be abusive. And a lack of empathy will never help them feel better. You know what it will do? All it will do is indicate to them that you're not a safe person to open up this about that you're not a safe person to be vulnerable with, and so it's not going to make them feel better. They're just going to stop talking to you about it. But can we listen to them and remind them of God's promises, ask good questions, and just ask, how can I help you? That's for believers. Um, for, For unbelievers, again, I think we're called to be empathetic and patient and ask good questions, but I would say let's not be so quick to give them assurance that's not ours to give. We cannot give assurance to non-believers that is not ours to give. We can't say it's all going to be okay if we can't believe that's true. Perhaps that angst that they're feeling is an open door to, again, ask good questions, listen well, and then, by God's spirit within you, share the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the foundational assurance for all anxiety. Okay, last one. Anxiety is not inevitable. Only grace is. Anxiety is not inevitable, only grace is. In life's most difficult seasons, grace seems fleeting, and anxiety feels like it's here to stay. But for those in Christ, the triune God is always working in you and through you for his glory. It's all grace. For it is by grace you were created by your heavenly Father in his own image. It is by grace you were restored by the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, at the cross and empty tomb. And it is by grace that you are filled and will endure with the Holy Spirit to the end. Again, Jasmine Holmes gives hope in the unseen. Says, quote, when you're an anxious person, the hard things seem inevitable. But for the child of God, grace is the only thing that is inevitable. Many days we won't feel like we have enough. But because of Jesus Christ, that's okay. Each day we wake up and we bring him what we can, and he will multiply that day after day. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for how often we find that your word speaks directly to that which is, seems to be most relevant to us and to the world around us. 
And I pray, Lord, you would give us the faith to trust your word this morning. Allow us to give the grace to ourselves to be patient with ourselves and with others. And to know, Lord, that the final note on this sermon, on this worship service, is that you will hold us fast. Because anxiety is not inevitable, only grace is. And to name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please stand as we uh, sing and prepare to close our service with the Lord's Supper. <laughs>